0: How did I get here? Jeffrey Jensen joins us from Lakeview Health to talk about his sobriety story and helping people understand their hero's journey. He helps individuals get to a safe place and this importance of understanding we are powerless over our addiction, everyone else is too. He talks about having reservations in sobriety versus being all in. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name's Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict. I deflect with humor and I'm fascinated by the human experience.
1: And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity.
0: I ask the dumb questions.
1: I fill in the gaps.
0: The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates.
1: Uh, Today, Kurt and I have the privilege and um, pleasure of talking with Jeffrey Jensen. Um, Jeff is a Client Services Associate at Lakeview Health. That's in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. Um, Jeff Jeff has his own unique recovery story, and he absolutely believes that everybody is the hero of their own story. Jeff, thanks for being with us today and taking some time to to share and, and to share your experiences and your wisdom.
2: Well, thank you so much, Shelly.
1: So, um, let's just, let's just kind of let the listeners get a little bit of a peek as to who you are and maybe how you ended up working at, at Lakeview health.
2: Cool. Um, so real quick, a little bit about myself, uh, and how I got introduced to, to this line of work. So, you know, I'm in recovery myself, and I went to a treatment facility when I was 18. This was 2006, and this was a adolescent program in Nashville, Tennessee. So this particular program, uh, you know, when I went in, a lot like most people in, in recovery can probably identify with, you know, I went in terrified. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the, the dream was never, hey, I want to, you know, to suffer from drug addiction or alcoholism. I want to go to treatment when I'm 18. Those weren't any thoughts I had. And, you know, going in there, it was it was kind of one of those moments where, you know, you wake up in, in treatment and you're just kind of like reflecting and like, how did I get here? You know, that that was kind of the question. It's like, dude, how did I end up in a spot like this? And, you know, I was – there were some, some key staff members at, at the facility I, I went to that had a, a profound uh, impact on on me and my attitude and kind of, you know, reshaping the direction that I was going to go in my life, and I remember, you know, about halfway through my stay, I, I thought to myself, this is what I want to do. I want to help people. I want to have that same type of impact. I want to help redirect. Um, I want to shoulder up with, with people that are, are struggling like I am, and See if I can't make a difference. So this particular program I went to had had a rule, and it was you know you can't work here uh, therapeutically until you have two years clean. So I'm telling all the staff members I'm walking around, I'm like hey I'm gonna you know I'm gonna work here one day. You just you wait. Uh, And sure enough, I I think I had about two and a half years clean. I was 20 years old, and I decided you know I, I put in the application. It was the first for me, like really big job. I had a recovery I like right out of treatment. I worked at a place called cheeseburger Charlie's and I was flipping cheeseburgers and I'd worked at target and, um, Walgreens. And there were a lot of these jobs that were more of a means to an end for me that lacked purpose. And they were more just kind of like, I, you know, my purpose at that point was really internal and like building a foundation for myself. And so, you know, two and a half years clean, I'm like, okay, now's the time. I'm going to go back and work for this facility. And, you know, I remember filling the application out online and I was like super nervous. And it was like the, you know, the biggest job I ever applied for in my life. And I, mind you, it was, it was uh, for a PRN, uh, for a behavioral health technician. So I was going to be, uh, you know, a clinical associate at the time and uh, basically be on the front lines with the adolescents, you know. Helping them, you know, getting them from group to school, help making sure the schedule was good, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, have the interview, get the job, and I'm work. You know, I start working there. Loved it, and I ended up working uh, at this facility off and on. You know, helping me get through college, and then after I graduated college, became uh, a full time employee, and I was in charge of what they called the extended care program for the adolescents. So. The extended care program was more twelve step focused, so I got to do the stuff I was really passionate about: helping the kids get through a four step, um, you know, teaching them about service work, taking them to meetings, all these really exciting things that are really impactful in recovery. And you know, I was there for the better part of seven years, um, and then you know, kind of got introduced to—I got a job offer in South Florida, so I moved to South Florida from Tennessee and through that kind of got introduced to working uh, for Lakeview Health down the road. And the specific job I do now is a little different than working uh, in direct care. So I'm not at our facility and you know, so Lakeview Health is located in Jacksonville, Florida, and I I work in the South Florida area. My main job um, description would be basically being a, um, you know, bridging the gap between families and individuals that are struggling with addiction and getting them to a safe place, whether that's at, you know, Lakeview Health or another facility that uh, we trust and, and is able to provide services that might be more needed for that client. My main job is, is on the front end, you know, treatment, working with families when they're in crisis mode, helping them get to a safe place. So. You know, a lot of the skill sets I acquired with with working with adolescents are very useful in crisis intervention and, um, you know, dealing uh, with families and helping families and clients be on the same page. But ultimately, the work's a little different. Uh, You know, you don't see the light come on for these clients like you did when you work, uh, you know, with them while they're in treatment but you always have the families that'll reach out six months later, a year later, and still stay in contact with you. And that's kind of, for me, the, the, why we do it. You know, when you talk about like, why do you do this? It's because, you know, when, when my mom and dad were looking for treatment for me when I was 18, they had someone on the other end of the phone when they needed them the most on the front end of treatment. And I get to be that for other people now. And, you know, it's a great honor to be able to work with these families that, which might be one of the most difficult days, weeks, months of their year, of their life, uh, they call you and they trust you. And I think that that's a great honor. And, and a lot of times, you know, if you've been doing it for a little while, it's easy to take that for granted. So trying to keep a um, perspective of how important that moment is for the family. And, you know, so that that's the short of kind of how I got to Lakeview, but, Yeah, love the work, love working in this industry. I think it's a high calling. Um, You know, Kurt was kind of saying earlier, I think, before we started that, you know, this, we don't just kind of like, as a kid, when, you know, you have your career day, you're not going up to your teacher in in high school and being like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to work with people who struggle with addiction and alcoholism. You know, it's not a career choice as much as it is a calling. Um,
0: and, And that's kind of what I feel to be true for me, for sure. You also have like this really pivotal time to be getting involved with those clients right because we always talk about the stigma right in the industry sure. of people who are unfamiliar with it there's there's a ton of lack of knowledge you know just in general society but the time when you start to talk to these a kids but b families right they're at, like their wits end they don't know what to do right they're bringing some broken soul to you, hoping that you're just going to mend the world. Sure. When when the reality is, is, is it's so helpful to just say, no, 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 this is a huge, this is a big world. Everybody deals with these problems and right. these are the, the, you know, this industry is not for broken children, right? Or humans. This is, this is the self-help world for people who want to get better, right? So there's, there's, this is a world of opportunity. You know and coming it it seems like it'd be fun to be at the place where you are where you know you're kind of the hand out right you're the hand up or whatever and and the front end of that the tip of the sword which seems like it'd be super rewarding
2: right and i I think there's you know when i was working with adolescents and the population i work with now is typically adults um but when i was working with adolescents and was kind of on the front line and in the milieu so to speak right the the skill like the, the probably the most powerful skill that I ever like acquired was figuring out how to just shoulder up with the kid you know and, and as soon as you know and, and I would tell people when you know I worked with adolescents they would say wow there needs to be more people like you in this world they're like I don't know how you do it and I'm like honestly, adolescents are probably the easiest population to work with as soon as they understand one thing, and that's that you're on their team. When they know that you are on their team, you're on team client or or whatever it is, there's not a thing in the world that they won't trust you with. And, you know, I've had the opportunity also to work with some adults. And what's funny about that is I almost had the exact opposite um, experience with adults where it's, they've been around long enough to kind of get stuck in their ways and like, know some things like they got it figured out. And the kids are just like, Hey, if you say this is the way I'll try it. And I can, I can respect that. And, and I just say all that to say that with these families, Kurt, and, and kind of what you were speaking to is at the tip of the spear on the front end of this, helping families find help. The the best thing any of us can do is is kind of like stand side to side with them and hold the light. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, these families are going to have to make their decisions. These clients are going to have to make their decisions. And we can't make them for them, unfortunately. But what we can do is is sit next to them instead of in front of them, shine a light on the path, and, and help them navigate getting to that. And once they get to the path, it's one of those, um, you know, leave it up to the higher power, trust the process kind of scenarios where... Hey, you know, on the front end, like we're here for you. We love you. We appreciate you all these things, but there has got to be some buy-in from the other party. Um, you know, nobody's gonna, gonna fix my life situation for me, but they can show me some tools. They can show me some direction. They can sit next to me and, and help me when I make mistakes. And I think that that's a lot of what our role is, is, is kind of shouldering up and being this, um, lighthouse, so, so to speak, and, and illuminating some, you know, illuminating some of the darkness that, that might cause confusion or, um, you know, ambiguity or, you know, whatever the choice word is there.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that seems like you're kind of uniquely experienced on is if you went to treatment at 18 in an adolescent facility you kind of were in a limbo age there anyways, right? You're probably one of the older kids at 18, you probably have the option to just go through an adult, you know, program. You're in a situation where you're probably still relatively dependent on your family and your family structure, but in a place where you're really ready to get away from that in some ways anyways, right? So how does that experience kind of help you to be able to relate and see as these clients are transitioning, help, help them make that path for themselves. Sure. It's a a good question. And it's true. It was like a, a unique
2: situation where, um, so, so the backstory there is that was the second time I went to that program. The first time I went, I was 16, turned 17 in treatment. Uh, my family was from Missouri, so I was living in Southwest Missouri. Uh, so if for the record in Southwest Missouri, there's like three things you can do. You can go to like bath Pro shop, you can go to Branson or you can get high. And so for me, I was, you know, obviously the latter of those three. But so it was like, you know, time for me to get treatment. I had, you know, two stints of alcohol poisoning. I was 16. My mom was just kind of like, Hey, what, what are we going to do with this kid? Um, and so they sent me to treatment for the first time from Springfield to Nashville when I got the treatment the first time, uh, I made a decision cause I was 17 then to stay in Nashville by myself. So at 17 years old, basically moved out of my, my parents' house, moved into a halfway house and this was 05. So this was a few years before I ended up getting clean for the last time. And you know, in 05 in Nashville that there was super solid recovery was not a ton of young people. If you notice now, like in these recovery communities, I know in South Florida, it's like this. I know in Tennessee, it's like this. um, There's a pretty significant movement of like younger adults sticking around, which is like the coolest thing ever. But back then there wasn't a lot of it. But in Nashville, they had a few. And what they also had in Nashville at the time was a, a recovery high school. So there was a high school for kids in 12 step recovery, which is why I moved there. So I ended up graduating, you know, I stayed clean for about a year, lived in this halfway house, graduated from a a high school called Community High School, and after that, when it was time to to do the college step, I had had reservations in my program, and, you know, they they talk about these reservations, you know, for those, like, early in recovery or who have been clean for a little while, being uh, spots in your recovery you reserve for, like, I don't know if i want to stay clean through this whether it's the death of a loved one for me it was going back to college so you know getting clean in high school i had this idea of what i wanted college to look like and for for my age group like a lot of if you guys are in your mid-30s or whatever you'll remember like the american pie movies where like they had these type of like party mentality college situations and i wanted that (laughs) I wanted to go to, like, parties in college and, like, keg parties. So I never talked about it. And I stayed clean for, you know, a year and a few months and went back to college and ended up relapsing. And what I found out in, like, this six-month relapse that I had was college parties are nothing like that. You know, it was a whole lot of loneliness. (laughs) It was a whole lot of late nights by myself. Uh, There was nothing fun about it. You know, it, it wasn't movie material, you know, it was just like a lot of dark depression. And I, I think the interesting thing for me was I had experienced the light of recovery. And then I went back to the darkness of addiction and it was so much more dark than before. Right. Like once we'd been kind of exposed to this light and you go back to this dark, it's, you know, your eyes aren't adjusted, so to speak, your metaphorical eyes, your spiritual eyes or whatever. And it was, it was rough. Um, you know, I remember in that time that I, that I was in my relapse, it was about a six month period, uh, four or five months into it. My, my family staged an intervention for me. So my, my mom, you know, she she has since passed away. Uh, she passed away when I had about a year and a half clean and she was one of the most interesting people in the world super caring, loving, compassionate. And she just had this mentality about life where she would just get something done, you know? And it was like, the, you know, just like we're powerless over our own addiction, everybody else is powerless over it too, you know? And, and that was a hard thing for her to grasp. So she had staged this intervention for me. Um, you know, like I said, I would moved to Nashville and I went back to college in Missouri where I originally used. And, my dad says he's in town for work and he wants to meet me at this hot, uh, at this uh, hotel just to catch up. You know, I didn't think anything of it. My dad's a professor. There's no reason he should be in town for work, right? He teaches people about writing English. So I didn't think anything of it. I go to this, this hotel and I kind of like knock on the door. I peek my head in and I see like my mom sitting down, my brother, there's an empty chair, my dad. And I'm like, we've all seen the show on A&E this is an intervention. Like, welcome to your intervention, Jeff. And so I left, obviously I didn't stay. <laughs> I left the intervention. Um, they called me. I ended up basically going back and, uh, heard them out And, and what I kind of told them was said, Hey, I'm not ready yet. But what that did for me, and I think it's important for like maybe families listening or anybody else is a lot of times I believe we're in the business of planting seeds. And, you know, we don't water them. We don't make them grow, but, but we, we plant them. And, and for me, what that intervention did is it planted the seed that when I was ready, help would be fast and readily available. And it wasn't, you know, it tops a month after that intervention that I finally called my parents. and I said, okay, uh, let's do this. You know, I'm ready. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tapped out. I figured it out. Uh, just life is not for me. And so that was kind of when I ended up going back to to, to this facility in Nashville the second time. So I was at 18, and I could either go back to the adolescent program where I knew everybody. I knew the staff. I knew the program. Or I could go to the adult program where I didn't know anyone. And I wanted to go to the facility I was more comfortable with, accustomed to. And so that was a really long version of why I ended up going back to the same place the second time. I think there was another question in there, Kurt, but I
0: honestly forgot what it was. Kind of no, well- no, engineered. no, no. It makes sense for why you were there, and the and the question I think was, you know, how seeing both sides of that, you know, helps you as you're dealing. It sounds like you're dealing mostly with adults now, anyway. So, the adolescent part isn't probably as big of a deal. But the part there that I think is is uniform for both adolescents and adults is there's always a family element, which can be tricky to navigate you know i think we talked to somebody last week where their facility they will not accept a client that doesn't have a family member they, they have to have someone who's willing to kind of come and learn a couple of things along the way to be supportive which i think is interesting so that was that was the real question was how that's helped you The the thing i think that you said was super interesting And I think can be a hard thing to teach is your comment about how we're powerless over our addiction. Obviously that's, everybody knows that, but everyone else is too. right? Right. And it, and it seems like that would be a really tricky principle to kind of get through a family member's head is, Hey, there's some skills, you know, that you need to learn, right? There's issues that you need to figure out here that can help. And you can't have any expectation of helping, right? Right. Like, how do you how do you be there? How do you be support? But you don't have control. You've got to let go of control. Right. You know, how do you kind of teach those things as someone's coming in? Well, I think that's so like the extraneous variable in the work we do always
1: is the willingness of the person needing help. Right. Choice word.
2: there, like the person that needs help. Their willingness is the extraneous variable. You can't account for it. You don't know how to measure it. It can change in the you know the flash of, you know the flash of light the snap of a finger it changes and i'll tell you know there's a few things here anytime i'm working with the family in the iron top we got a strike you know sitting around kind of trying to we get everything lined up beforehand um, you got to have the plan in place you got to be ready to execute because the second iron top is when you got a strike but the other thing i kind of like to talk about when i'm talking to family specifically so if you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to the person that needs help, uh, it's kind of a different conversation than if I'm talking to the family of the person who needs help. And what I, what I like to do a lot of the times with, with these families, the first question I'll always ask is, you know, have you guys ever heard of al Have you heard of Naranon? Um, some of the time they'll say, yes, I've heard of it, and I go to these meetings religiously. And almost every time you hear that, you can tell the difference in the boundaries that are set with their loved one. And, and they're, they're very, more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, they're these very healthy boundaries. And it is not a form of control. It is very much, uh, almost a, a level of acceptance with with their powerlessness over the the disease of addiction. And as a result of that, what it does is it puts the ball in the person who needs help. It puts it in their court. So hey, we love you. We're going to support you uh this is how we can support you right now if you continue to use and this is how we can support you if you want to get help either way we're going to be there the support's going to look a little bit different based off of your willingness and and what what i think is super effective about that is especially for people like myself maybe you guys too that that um have addiction alcoholism is you're almost always more willing when you think you have control almost always (laughs) And so when it's like, hey, uh, if you choose this, this is what you get. If you choose that, this is what you get. And you're like, oh, wow, I get a choice. And it's almost, you know, it just makes things easier for everyone. And I don't know if that answers your question or not, but one of the things that I think is super impactful and important for families um, is, this. you know, a lot of, you hear a lot of people talk about how this is a, a family disease. And the meaning of that is, is more than anything is it affects everyone in the family, the dynamic of the relationships, everything shifts. Um, you know, it, it is in that sense, a very, uh, destructive force a lot of times. And what we find out is when members of the family start to get help and go to Alamon or, or maybe it's individual counseling and, and they start to learn these, uh, boundaries to protect themselves when they start to get better, the process starts to get better as well. And if nothing more, it gets easier, I think. Uh, I, don't, I don't think easy is easier. I think simple is the right word. It gets more simple. It doesn't mean it's easier. It's just a more simple process. So, you know, when there's nothing left to do, I think a lot of times that the best thing we can do is focus on how we can take care of ourselves as family members, Uh, or even, you know, individuals who maybe don't have a lot of families, you know, so there you know, I think there are people who struggle with addiction that don't have a lot of family support and and those people, I think too, need to have a place where maybe they have a family of choice. That's not a family of origin. Those people are important to bring into the process as well. And so figuring out kind of what that looks like from a treatment perspective, from a recovery perspective, or even on, on my instance, Helping somebody get into treatment. Uh, sometimes we're talking to their significant other, uh, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their friend that cares about them. I think anybody that's family of choice or origin is important to bring into that process.
1: That's profound, and and you know, I, I guess I've, I'm curious, Jeff. How often when you interact with families, do you do you um, do you come across people, family members that are like? you know, the person, the addict is the one who's sick The you know, the person who's using is the one who's sick. And if you will just take them and fix them, everything else is better. How often do you come across that as opposed to a family who maybe has done some Al-Anon or maybe has a little bit of recover behind them and, and gets that that is not really true. More often
2: than I would like. (laughs) So, uh, and I only say that because, you know, there was, you know, there, there was a word we talked about earlier, stigma. And and I think that there is a specific – well, there's a lot of stigmas, but with addiction and alcoholism, there is this stigma that, um, you know, the addict is choosing uh, to live this lifestyle. And in some circumstances, I can see that. Like, logically, I can understand why people believe that. From personal experience, I can also understand that, um, you know, Toward you know when it became chemical dependency for me, so it was like the three quick stages for me of addiction was you know first thing I was experimenting, second thing was kind of recreational use, I was doing it with my friends, and once it progressed to chemical dependency, I kind of forfeited my choice. Um, I had got to the spot where I was using against my will. I was I was in the middle of using, telling myself I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. So from personal experience, I can understand how that's not the case. And from a third party trying to be understanding of people, I can understand why their thought process would be uh, addiction is a choice in this kind of idea or mentality. And I think the frustrating thing is knowing the other side of it from personal experience, how shame has never helped anybody get anywhere good in their life. And when we have that type of mentality, it's a very shame-driven conversation. It's a shame-driven form of helping somebody. And you, you really can kind of get down to, like, the core of when we help people. If, if they got a family member trying to help somebody out of shame while they're shaming them, <laughs> you can understand how that's not going to work very well, right? Like, they may get to where they need to go, but in that family system, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um And I I think too, when if I'm looking at a case, um, and I'm working with the family, and I'm working with the individual, you know, the number one thing I remember right off the bat is that you know, the first thing we do is no harm, right? The first thing we do always is no harm. The second thing we do is we got to get an individual whoever whoever needs the treatment. We got to get them to a safe place before we can start to really dig into some of those you know, unhealthy belief systems, unhealthy family systems can't do that while the person's still using and at risk. So everything I do in that's you know, in that first kind of initial talk with the family, talk with the client is, is always geared toward getting them somewhere safe and doing no harm. If I can accomplish those two things, it's a success for me. And then once we have kind of bought ourselves some time, we can start digging into Clinically, when they get to the facility, when they get to where they need to go, I trust, you know, the clinicians either, you know, that we have at Lakeview or another facility we work with, uh, that they are going to get what they need from the the clinical side of things.
1: Um, Often, kind of along these lines that you're talking about, often, you know, addiction is misunderstood, right? It's not, you know, once the brain, you know, has those neural pathways that are concreted, you, you don't get the choice anymore. You may have, right. your your ability to choose is extremely limited at that point. And, sure. and, and that's hard for us to grab hold of because all you have to do is just stop using, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, if I could have done that, I would have done that a long time ago. It just doesn't. Well, never thought of that, thank you. Right, right. And that idea that it actually rewires the brain and says that this drug is more important than my life. It's more important than living. It's more important than having a house over, you know, a shelter over my head or having food. The drug is more important. And and it takes a bit for people to really wrap their head around that. Um, there's also this idea that addiction is a symptom of right. more core issues. Can you talk a little bit about some of the core issues that you um, have seen or some of them that, that pertain to you as you were in in your recovery? Sure. Um,
2: so that's a really good question, point, especially when you're talking about kind of the, the brain and wire together, fire together, and these type of like neurological things are well out of my like intellectual capacity. You know, there's some of these scientists that are just absolute wizards with this stuff. But... Um, in terms of addiction being a symptom of other things going on, I'm, you know, that's my belief is, you know, I'm more of a believer that, you know, I was kind of born with this gene. Um, and that certain uh, whatever set of scenarios lined up in my life for this, uh, for that to kind of come to life or come to fruition kind of happened. And, I kind of like think about like a chicken egg scenario, you know, kind of what comes first and and I don't know the necessary uh, or or necessarily what that is. But what I do know is, you know, early on in life, there were certain things and traumas that I had. So, you know, one of those traumas was uh, my mom, she is, or was, she suffered from Crohn's disease and she had a very bad, um, she she had a real bad type of Crohn's disease. I think there's different intensities, And for her, she was in and out of the hospital two, three times a week, uh, couldn't get, you know, couldn't get a doctor to figure out kind of what was wrong. So there, there were times where, you know, in my head as a kid, it was kind of like, you know, when is my mom going to die? Right. There was a certain level of, um, emotional instability I had from that type of always on edge, wondering when this catastrophic event was going to happen in my life, um, you know, around the time she also was in recovery. So she went to treatment when I was five or six years old and had this, this life of recovery as well. And it became a very interesting balance for her because a lot of these medications that she needed to treat Crohn's disease and make her life, um, not painful were also some medications that, uh, if unchecked could, you know, kill her or, make the addiction worse feed the addiction so it was a really tough boundary and balance for her to find but i say all that to say that you know some of those type of traumas for me were you know situations i had to face in recovery and and what i found out and this this was a really interesting thing is i i feel like early on in recovery i dealt with the trauma like the action and, and kind of talked about it, came to peace with it, um, didn't have these type of trauma responses to those specific situations. What I didn't deal with until my later years in recovery, I'm talking 10, 11, 12 years clean, was the belief system I created as a result of the trauma. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, so I had this trauma, You know, a handful of different things that happened, and I dealt with that situation. But when that happened, I cultivated these belief systems about trusting you know, females, about my self-worth, about different things that were very deep and important to figure out and never dealt with the belief system because I thought the trauma was handled. So I would keep running into these situations in my recovery that would kind of like bump in my head against the wall scenarios, uh, just the life stuff that... Um, if I had a healthier belief system, I would have been able to avoid, but it takes what it takes. And eventually we, we figure out how to, to manage it. And I say all that to say that like in my later years in recovery, I finally started to address some of these belief systems I had. And it was interesting to see how the rest of my life started to get easier and better because I had, you know, I had been operating with these faulty belief systems for the first 28 years of my life. You know, so uh, I don't know if that necessarily speaks to kind of what we were talking about. But for me, there was, you know, those things that had to get dealt with. But first things first, like I I had to get clean. I had to get a um, sense of security in my life before those things could really start to get dealt with. And I think that when we talk about helping people who have trauma, which in my opinion is almost everyone, um, the first thing that, that people need is to be safe, right? If they don't feel safe and they're not in a safe environment, we can't start to work on that stuff. You know, we, we got to get somebody safe. We got to teach them tools that help them feel grounded, that help get back to the moment. And when, when they kind of have this tool belt and they're in an the atmosphere where they feel safe, that's when it's a good time to start kind of going to work on some of those, you know, the traumas and the belief systems and, those
1: type of things. It's interesting that you bring that up. And, you know, the way I look at it, I've talked to people and they'll say, you know, they'll say, look, I've dealt with the trauma. The trauma's good. I just need to figure out the addiction. And I'm like, hmm, all right. Okay. But, you know, like, you know, trauma doesn't go away. Like there's layers. It's like that onion that Shrek talks about, right? There's layers. And you're just going to, you're going to keep those layers. are going to keep coming, depending on, you know, your relationship changes and life changes. It triggers that stuff up. And it's like you said, you dealt with the trauma, but not the belief system around the trauma. There's so many layers to trauma that like if we're not working on it our whole life, it's going to it's going to pop up. Right. It's going to come out sideways. Um, And so I love that you talk about it like that. I imagine that losing your mom, even though you had done the trauma work and you had a little bit of sobriety underneath of you would have been a huge trigger because it's the very thing as a child that you feared all the time. What was that like for you? so
2: it was actually it's that's this is kind of a good story so <laughs> you're right there was uh you know so i'm you know the mem- the 12-step program i'm a member of um we have kind of a workbook and in that workbook you get to write a bunch of questions and a bunch of answers it's super self revealing it's insightful it's really good and powerful stuff so in my step work in the first step Like I was talking about earlier, it has a section for reservations and the second. So this time when I got clean 15 years ago, that was my reservation. Everything else had been figured out. I knew I didn't want to do the whole American pie college thing. All that other, like I'd figured all the other stuff out. That was my reservation. I was like, when she dies, I don't know if I'll be able to make it. Right. So. You fast forward, first year of recovery, nothing catastrophic happened. You know, there was like minor things, like you'd be at the halfway house, someone would eat your ramen noodles, you'd get pissed off about it, call your sponsor, that type <laughs> of stuff that felt like the end of the world, but was really just simple life stuff that you have to practice some spiritual principles on, and it's good. So, you, you fast forward a little bit, and you know, my mom's in and out of of, of the hospital, and... I kind of, you know, I know something at some point it's going to happen, but, you know, I had about 14 months clean and at the time my mom and dad were living in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was living back in Nashville. So my dad was teaching at a university there. Uh, He was teaching rhetoric and writing and she was, you know, she didn't work and, you know, I'm going to visit my mom's big thing for me, for whatever reason, She's like super, it was super important to her that I was in recovery, obviously. But for some reason, it was really important to her that I got an education. I don't know if it's because she's, you know, so her upbringing is, you know, she's Jewish. She's big. She was a big fan of education for whatever reason. I never was, Um, you know, and in high school, I got diagnosed with being dyslexic. I used it as a crutch, took advantage of like the extra help I would get. Took advantage of the the whole whatever school system. But so I'm in college and I'm going to visit my mom and dad about a five hour drive from Nashville to Little Rock. When I get there, you know, she's in the hospital. I get the information that she's got some sort of heart condition on top of Crohn's disease. Something in my gut didn't feel right about it. Um, and you'd think that, you know, if, If your mom's in the hospital two or three times a week, it begins to feel normal that she's in the hospital. It becomes a normal part of your life. And for whatever reason, this part felt different. She was in, I called my sponsor. I'm like, hey man, something doesn't feel right about this. We went through it. Um, At the time, I think I'm on a a seventh and eighth step. And he was like, look, um, you might, now is the time for you to go do your amends with your mom. So... I went to this noon meeting in Little Rock. I got to share about it and, you know, close mouth doesn't get fed, shared what what was going on. And then it just so happened that at this meeting, um, you know, there was 10, 15 people with 20 plus years of recovery. And they all just started sharing their experience, strength and hope on doing amends with their parents. And it was like this really magical, God-centered situation. You can just tell sometimes when the setup is spiritual, you know, like you didn't plan this. Everything is just kind of conspired to help you in this situation. And I heard everybody's experience, strength and hope. I got to talk to people after the meeting, went to the hospital to do my amends with my mom. And so I set her down and, you know, I'm a big believer. Like we make amends, uh, not excuses. And, you know, so, so the harm, a lot of the harm I did, Toward my mom was, you know, robbing her of nights of sleep. Um, you know, she would be up at night wondering if she was gonna get a call from the cops, wondering if she was gonna get a call from the hospital. Um, and so those were those were the things I was making amends for. And so kind of like toward the end of it, I said, Hey, like, what can I do to make this right? I wanna make this right. And she she said two things. She was like, I want you to stay clean and I want you to graduate college. I'm like, oh, you had to throw the second one in there. It could just been in recovery, but now I got, you know, four more years of college I got to figure out. So I said, done. You know, I can handle that. I can do that. And go back to, Na- go back to Nashville, starting, you know, my second semester or something like that. Um, things are going well. Like at that point in our life, what had happened, and I believe this to be one of the – um, you know, divine kind of interventions was like I had gotten to a spot in my recovery where my mom trusted, didn't just trust me, she trusted that I was gonna be okay. And there was a big difference there. You know, so you can trust somebody and not not quite sure if they're gonna be all right or not. You know, I got a few friends like that that I trust a lot. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know like I don't know if they're gonna be okay, but she had trusted I was gonna be okay, and I think for her that that was the spot where she could kind of, like, relax a little bit. She knew her baby boy was going to be okay. I got a big brother, dude's a brainiac, um, you know, by the book, about as, you know, tight as they come. I was a little, I was kind of a loose cannon growing up. So, you know, she wasn't so sure. And she got to the spot where I think she trusted that. And there was, a you know, fast forward maybe two or three months, she's back in the hospital, um... Um, I decided I was going to go surprise her. It was the weekend before summer school started. And so I drive to to Little Rock. I get there. It's midnight. I stop at Kroger and I buy some flowers. This is something I've never done before. I never bought her flowers while she was in the the hospital because it was, it happened so often. It wasn't something I really kind of put together that I was supposed to do. So bought her like these pink roses, took them to the hospital at midnight, um, surprised her. And, you know, she, you could tell that at that moment when I showed up with these, these flowers, she was, I had become an asset to my family. That was like the defining spot where I realized finally that I was no longer a liability, that she was, she was proud. She, you know, I was, I was a benefit. Um, she walked around, showed the nurses, she felt elated. Um, and I remember I went and I picked her up the next day from the hospital. I took her home. Uh, it was around Mother's Day, gave her a card, and then I think the next day I drove back to Nashville because I had summer school starting. So summer school started on Monday, and I left there on a Sunday. And then I got a call Monday morning that she had passed away. And for me, it was you know, it was one of those things where it's like well, I tell people early in recovery, like, you know, practice these tools long before you need them. So when you do need them, it becomes like this muscle memory. Um, and so I got the call from my brother. First thing I did call my sponsor, uh, showed up in my house. There was, you know, five or six men in recovery that were my friends beat me there, you know? And for me, I think the, the best part about all that was when I realized that like the best amends I gave her was the fact that she could like rest in peace and not be worried that her you know, youngest son, the loose cannon, wasn't going to figure it out, right? So she, she had trusted, got to the spot where she trusted that I was going to be okay, and she knew that at that point she didn't have to keep fighting. So the the beautiful thing there was I know how fortunate I am to be able to have the opportunity to make those amends and leave on a good note. You know, I don't think... You know, at some point we're going to lose our parents. Hopefully, and I say hopefully because the all the the alternative to that is is probably the worst thing in the world. Anytime a parent has to bury a child, so you know, at some point they're probably going to pass away. And me having uh, the fortune to be able to kind of make that right before it happened uh, was a huge blessing. And I know a lot of people weren't that fortunate. So, you know that that was emotional but it was good you know like those two things coexist a lot more often than than people care to talk about but toughest thing i ever went through but it was and i hope this doesn't sound weird but it was like amazing and it was divine and it was i was able to walk through it because i had put the work in and and there were you know relationships i had in recovery and the fellowship that carried me through it um you know it's one of those things like she is was it maybe 12, 13 years ago? It's been, it feels like a lifetime. Um, and it's not easy all the time, but it's also one of those things I I have the ability to look back at and be really grateful for how it went down. Grateful that, you know, we had had the time we did together. We share a lot of the same passions, uh, fishing being one of those. So she was actually a fishing guide at Table Rock Lake in Missouri. And that was like her favorite thing in the world to do is fish. So I live in South Florida, there's, you can drive three blocks in any direction and catch a fish down here. So for me, like that's when I want to connect with, with her or anybody that I've lost that I try to do the things that were really important to them. And for my mom, it's easy. I can, I can go fish, uh, any of those kinds of things. So I don't know that it was, uh, it was one of those things where it happens and, and like thank goodness, I had the right
1: people in my life to guide me through it, you know? Wow. That's a very powerful story. I love that you've shared that and um, and, and the way that you've set it up, right, Jeff? Because you had to do a lot of work to be able to move through that. Um, and and, and the, the things that you're sharing are evidence of the work that you've done because you can see the behavioral changes, right? It shows up in the way you, that, that you show up with relationships. So Super powerful story. I love that you were willing to come on today and share that with us, and uh, um, and really be vulnerable with with the audience and uh, with Kurt and I. Um, I mean, I th- I think the stories are really powerful, and I think you know something we talked about a little earlier that that maybe we can end on today is that uh, that everybody is the hero of their own story, right? We talked about. Um, I was talking with somebody earlier today, they'd they listened to our very first podcast where we talked about imposter syndrome, and they like, yeah, I'm feeling a little imposter-ish, right? But that we all feel little and small, but we are all heroes. And, and maybe just touch base on that for just a little bit, your perspective around that.
2: Sure, sure. So um, and thanks thanks for saying that, Shelly. Um, so when we were talking earlier, we were talking a little bit about the hero's journey. And I was introduced to the hero's journey through Dr. Brad Reedy, who is an absolute stud. Um, But, you know, he basically had given me this DVD, and it was called Finding Joe, and it was about Joseph Campbell, who had uh, done a lot of research about uh, different archetypes, one of which being the hero. An archetype is kind of like a stereotypical character in any kind of storyline. So I think the easiest way for me to always kind of explain it if I'm talking to somebody is looking at movies a lot of people are familiar with. So if you look at Star Wars, you have, you know, Luke Skywalker. If you're talking about uh, Lord of the Rings, there's, you know, Frodo and whatever. So these are, you know, the stereotypical hero in uh, different movies. And, you know, Joseph Campbell would talk about that each one of these heroes has, um, the same type of journey that they start in this really familiar place and, you know, something happens, whether, you know, even Harry Potter, he was living under, you know, this magical wizard living under uh, a staircase, right? It's like very, this is his reality. And then he gets this call to adventure where, uh, you know, something, somebody basically comes in and gives you this invitation to do something more special than you'd been doing and they talk about accepting the call to adventure and if you look at you know my own personal story a lot of that was for me was when i was using that was me living under the stairwell um at some point it, it, it i got the call to adventure to basically get introduced to recovery go to treatment and then it started my kind of hero's journey where there were um you know I guess to, to stick with the metaphor, there are dragons to slay, thresholds to overstep. Um, I have certain people that are my helping hands, right? That, that help me figure these different things out in my life. And, you know, he would say that the, the point of the journey is always to come back and share the story, right? The point of the journey is you go back and you share your trials and your tribulations with other people, and they are able to use these. They are able to get these inspirations, uh, they were able to get help from your journey. And so when you were talking earlier, Shelley, about having people come on and kind of share their story, share their journey, I was like, man, it's like the hero's journey because we all are the main character in our life, but hopefully uh, and not in an arrogant way or an egotistical way, but um, you know, if we can go through this life and and like start to like chase some goals and enjoy this like life and chase some dreams and then we're able to come back and share with other people and help them do that, it becomes purposeful. You know, this, this journey, it it adds purpose to what we're doing. Um, But yeah, any, if if anybody wants to check out that, that movie um, super good, it's called finding Joe and it kind of like helps you see the metaphor between like your life and like the journey of of a hero and like a stereotypical kind of movie.
1: Very cool. I will be watching that movie, I promise, very soon. So I love you sharing that and love sharing your story. Um, for me, stories, stories are super healing, and I'll get more out of a story than anybody lecturing to me any day. So I love the stories. They're so powerful. And, and your your journey um, is very unique and, and and very heroic in and of itself. So thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you, Shelly, And thank you, Kurt, for, uh, for having me. I appreciate you guys taking the time and, and inviting
0: me out to the podcast of course thanks for coming I, I love the analogy of the hero's journey and i'm kind of just sitting in that thinking a little bit more about it it'll be fun to think about uh, more and, and i'd like to watch the show it's interesting because you you mentioned that they, they don't mean hero in like an ego way right and it's interesting to think about how no hero thinks about themselves in that way, right? Any, any true hero really ends up being, you know, a servant or someone who does good for others. It's impossible to be a narcissistic hero, right? That's always the villain, right? Right. So it's interesting. It's interesting to think that being the hero of your own story is kind of a righteous, valid pursuit. You know, it's not, it's not self-serving in the wrong ways. It's self-serving in the right way. So that's cool. That's interesting. Thanks for bringing that.
2: Yeah, of course. It's funny you say that too. You think about these other, like, if you look at these movies with, when you think about a, like a hero, it's always almost like they're being a hero that it's like, they don't want it. They don't want to be that. There's this apprehension. There's this drawback. And then they're like, no, no, no. If you don't do this, people are going to get hurt. And they're like, well, if you put it like that, I guess I have to. You know, it's almost always this like selfless pursuit, which I think is really
0: cool. I never even thought about it like that. Yeah, it's kind of the true, the true source of leadership. the 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 best source for for leadership, or or not just of others, but of yourself. Just right. cool. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Thanks for being cool.
2: here. I appreciate you guys.